I want to read from Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 and 19 today. Hear the word of the Lord. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Let's pray. Oh Lord, again, you know exactly where we're going and what you will require of us when we get there. And so we ask, Lord, that you not let us go alone, but that you'd walk with us, that you'd teach us, that you'd be patient with us, that you'd be tender and yet firm, and that you would work in us that which you require of us. And so that if we, if we do see fruit, if we are able to see the work, we would turn and we would say that all the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise goes to you, our God. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. I'm sure you've all probably come across certain people who because of their upbringing or their particular way of studying the scriptures, their particular hermeneutical bent, seem to open the Bible and read it and read one word, Israel. And that's as far as they get. For many readers of the scriptures and for many students of God's word, because of the obvious Jewish nature and Jewish origin of the oracles of God, they read the scriptures and they struggle to ever move past this geopolitical ethnic group to see the full scope of what the Bible teaches. We have to, we realize the majority of the scriptures quantitatively is, is centered around and focused upon these people. The Bible is predominantly a Jewish book written by Jewish people. Men preserved by the Jewish people recording events that are almost exclusively Jewish and recording the history of the Jews. It's not until we come to what we would consider the end of the book that we begin to see the, the application and the outworking of these things with the Gentiles. And the issue here is that while these things are true about the Bible itself, that nation is not the most important theme in the Scriptures. They are a means to an end. Or maybe I should say it as a nation is a means to an end. Remember, there are 34 chapters of the Bible before we even read the word Israel. And even then, it's just Jacob's new name. It's not even yet a nation. It's the name of one man. It's not until we get to the book of Exodus that we learn about this nation, the nation of Israel, 
we could just as easily say the nation of Jacob, the nation of Israel, and it's formed and described there as God's firstborn son. And that's important. You'll remember that we, when we studied the Passover, we learned that, that it's all typological. It's all pointing us to something. This, these shadows started with Adam in the garden, and then we moved to Israel. Adam was not an Israelite in the Garden of Eden. He was just a man. And that shadow, again, it starts with Adam, then it moves to Israel, and then it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the focal point of the Scriptures. And I know this sounds repetitive. We've heard this, but I want you to get this. And I want to read this quote from Richard Barcelos that, that might clarify and, and drive home this, this idea. He says, quote, The first Adam was a son of God who was a prophet, priest, and king. He failed his task as assigned to him by the Creator. He did not enter the rest of God proffered to him, which was predicated upon obedience to the stipulations imposed upon him. Israel, the corporate son, failed its task as well. Though God's purpose for Israel did not fail, the Messiah was to come through Israel and did. Old covenant Israel typified... We could read in there, foreshadowed, painted pictures of aspects of the person, work, people, and kingdom of the Messiah. The failures of Adam and Israel established the context for a proper understanding of the sufferings and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord is both the last Adam and faithful Israel, end quote. Now, I say all that by way of introduction to say this. As we, as we follow our Lord down Passion Week, again, who is the culmination of all previous revelation, we follow Him through these various interactions in the city of Jerusalem. We have to remember that Matthew's audience, his Jewish audience, would have had a very similar bias, just like the Zionists of our day, toward their ancestral faith. They would have read the Scriptures and saw Israel. It would have popped out at them. Everything of a Jewish origin would have exploded off of the page at them. In their time period, they would have had Judaizers coming to them and saying, just come back. Like, like Rome is saying now, come back home. Yeah. They would have had their, their ancestors and their family members coming back and trying to bring them back into the submission to the religion of their fathers. Just come back home. You can, you can keep doing what you're doing, but just come back and worship this way and, and do these things. Matthew wants his audience to see and realize that God's plan has always been bigger than Israel. It's always been bigger than the positive ordinances given to them that centered around the temple and the city of Jerusalem. All of that was a picture of what God was ultimately doing. Israel, as a nation, was a tool used by God to bring about the promises of Abraham. Israel, as a nation, failed to keep their side of the covenant that God had made with them. And so in our text today, we see a, a very vivid picture of what the plan now involves. Now that they've rebelled, now that they've rejected Christ, their Messiah, or they, they are in the process of that, what's going to happen? Here we have a word picture. 
or, or more than a word picture, a, a vivid live action display of the plan. So I want to give you two points today uh, by way of exposition, and they're both questions. Here's the first question that we need to ask here as Gentile readers of this text. What is happening? What's happening? Look at verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Now we know if, we, if you pay attention, Jesus does not stay in Jerusalem. Every evening he would go and stay in Bethany. So he comes into the city every morning. He leaves every evening, all week until he's eventually arrested um, and, and tried. He's staying in Bethany, and he has become hungry as he makes his way to the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you read commentators, they say, well, he obviously was you know, so devoted to the work that he was about to do in Jerusalem that he didn't even eat breakfast. He just left. But I think it's interesting that, he, that it makes mention of his becoming hungry because if you'll remember, whenever Jesus stopped at the well to talk to the woman at the well, the disciples went on into the city to get food. They had obviously been traveling. They were hungry. And he stays. By the end of the, the, the scene there, they come back with food, take some food, and he says, I'm good. I've got food that you don't know about. It was his food, his sustenance was to do the will of his father. We know that. The point is, Jesus could have made it into the city. This is not a hunger of starvation. This is not a matter of life and death. It was a matter of teaching his disciples a lesson. Now we can see in this, yes, he's fully man. He became hungry. He, he felt these, these urges just like we do. His stomach grumbled just like our stomachs grumbled. But he's not starving. He's about to teach a lesson. What's happening? Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson. Notice verse 19. He's hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. Now Mark, not writing to Jews, Mark's writing to a more Roman audience, gives a, a, some more details here. First, Mark tells us that he saw it from a distance. So as he's walking, he sees the tree from a distance. And Mark also tells us that it was that when he comes to the tree and he finds only leaves, Mark says, for it was not the season for figs. Fig season would not be in uh, full, or figs would not be in full season ready to eat for another month. Now, that may not be a big deal to many of us. Figs grow with the leaves. When the leaves grow, there are figs on the tree. So the fact that there are leaves on this tree show that it is it's ahead of schedule. In other words, it appears from a distance to be an exceptional tree. From a distance, it looks wonderful. It looks beneficial. It looks fruitful superficially. But upon closer examination, he finds nothing but leaves. In other words, and this is another rarity here. It's early and it's got leaves. And then he gets to it and it doesn't have fruit. This is, this is a, a rarity. So we have this fig tree that is putting forth an exceptional external display, but is at the same time surprisingly unproductive. Looks good on the outside, and yet unproductive. And he said to it, 
May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And so here are the words of the, the cursing of the fig tree. And the heading in my Bible says Jesus curses the fig tree. Here's the curse. He pronounces this curse and he renders this particular tree barren forever. And we read that it withered at once. Now, Mark tells us that the disciples didn't actually notice or make reference to the withering until the following morning. Now, if I told you that a tree withered at once in the grand scheme of horticulture and trees, 24 hours would be very fast for a tree to wither. Now, whether this tree withered over the course of 24 hours or whether it immediately withered at that instant and, and they didn't make a reference to it until later, you can, you can read guys go back and forth and argue about the timeline of this, especially if they don't believe in the, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. They're going to find an error here. Um, Matthew, again, he's writing to Jews. He puts together two mornings of events, the cursing and the lesson, which goes through verse 22, so that his audience can see and see the picture all put together. In other words, he's not trying very hard to be chronological about all this. He just wants to see the, the cursing and the lesson. So again, what is happening? Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson by cursing an exceptional and yet unproductive fig tree. Second heading. Another question. What did this mean to Matthew? Or we might could also say, what, did th what would this have meant to Matthew's audience? As Matthew, one of the twelve disciples, he's there walking with our Lord when he saw this event unfold and then he wrote it down later for his Jewish audience. What is he trying to convey? What would they have read here? Well, let's just pay attention to some of these details from a Jewish perspective. We have first the main character, Jesus, who is the Christ, God's Messiah, he is the fulfillment of every messianic promise and prediction that's ever been made. He is the one that Matthew has already spent over 20 chapters putting forth as the king over this messianic kingdom. Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem. This Again, the city of God, the, the epicenter of worship for God's people on the earth. He's returning to this religious center that he's already rebuked once. Remember, if the, if the timeline is correct in my head, and again, this is all debatable. He walks into the city. He enters the city. He looks around. He leaves. He comes back the next day, cleanses the temple. And he leaves. And now he's coming back. He's already rebuked this city once. And the worship that's happening there. God's Messiah entering into God's city that he's already rebuked. Now here's the most important question. And the thing for us that's probably the most uh, significant and the most, uh, the, the most hidden for us. What is the significance of the fig tree? What, what, what does that have to do with what's happening here? The fig tree... And specifically, fruit production in general throughout redemptive history has been a sign of God's blessing or curse on a people. His people specifically. Fruit production 
If there is fruit, it's a sign of God's blessing. If there is no fruit, it's a sign of God's cursing. Now let me prove this to you. I'll have you turn somewhere in a minute. But listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 28. These are the original blessings and curses that God gave to this people when He gave them the law. The first in verses 2 through 5. Listen here. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Now listen to the curses. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today. Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. God's blessings on these people originally were displayed in whether or not they would be fruitful. And that included not only the fruit of the womb, but the fruit of the ground. Obedience would lead to fruit. Disobedience would lead to no fruit. Now as redemptive history progresses, this imagery is used over and over again, not only literally, but also as as a picture. Turn with me to Micah chapter 7. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, chapter 7. And start at verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. You see the analogy. There's fruit, but he's talking about people. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. Excuse me. The best of them is like a briar. Here we come back into this horticultural picture. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Now listen to this. For the son treats his father with contempt, and the daughter rises against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the men of his house, his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now how 
I hope you can hear the, the parallel there. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Can you see the parallel? Judgment. Now listen to these. You don't have to turn here. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 4 through 7. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? He's come to find good fruit. He's finding what he doesn't want to find. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. He's looking for justice. He finds bloodshed. He's looking for righteousness. He finds an outcry. He goes to find something positive, beneficial, fruitful. He doesn't find it. Two weeks ago, I made reference to Jeremiah chapter 7. They were making the house of the Lord into a den of robbers in Jeremiah's day and in Jesus' day. Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 8. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. We could go on and on and multiply these texts. They're all over the Old Testament. Now what's interesting is all of these things were written prior to the destruction of the first temple. Yeah. God had gone to His people via the prophets time and time again and had tried to gather from His visible people good, beneficial fruit, but there was none or very little, almost none found. And so they were eventually taken into captivity. He tore down their walls, their hedges, and eventually they were taken. They were conquered. And that was the first fulfillment. This is a, also a good lesson in how prophecy works in the Old Testament. Just because it was fulfilled one time doesn't mean it doesn't have multiple applications later on. So the fig tree, just like an olive tree, just like an olive branch, just like a vine, a grapevine, this represents God's people with a focus on the fact that God comes to His people looking for fruit. He wants to see them producing a harvest of worshipers. And when He doesn't find fruit, He renders them useless and void. We're no good to God right. without producing fruit. Okay, so then what would Matthew's audience have seen when they read these verses in his gospel? They would have read this of this scene, and they would have thought one thing, judgment upon God's people. It's coming. Judgment is near. Fruit was sought. No fruit was found. And so the tree was cursed. The tree was rendered incapable of producing fruit. Before, there was still a possibility. Now, no more. 
There's no longer a possibility. This would have been a vivid display using the exact same pictures and words and types and shadows of their Old Testament prophets. A vivid display that God is coming in judgment upon this nation and its abominable religious enterprise. And I've said that for three weeks now, it seems. Three or four weeks. That's what we're watching unfold before us. Now, what does this mean for us? That's what they would have read. I don't think the application is very hard to see, is it? I think it's very obvious how we could apply this. But what I want to do is, is climb a few steps up a little higher so maybe we can see a little closer, a little more clearly what we might pull out of this. And here are our steps. I've got four steps. We're going to walk up the first one. We need to understand that Christ hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still rules over all creation. He still rules with a very specific application and manifestation over His people. That same Jesus who cursed that fig tree on that road is alive and well and reigning bodily from His victorious throne in the heavens. He's not changed. Second step, the existence of a visible people of God is still true. That, that hasn't changed. Remember, ethnic Israel was basically a physical association. And within that nation, there were true followers of God. Now, while the, the people of God visibly are no longer manifested by physical lineage, and that's where we would disagree with our Presbyterian brothers, they do assemble themselves under the guise of a physical assembly. We call that the visible church. And that visible church, every visible church just like this, contains within her both true and false sons. We do not believe that the church has replaced Israel. We believe that within both visible Israel and the visible church, there will be found, and God knows, His true church. The elect of God, what Paul calls the Israel of God. They've always been and they will always be. The Israel of God, His true people within the pales of, an, of a visible people. Third step, we're getting a little higher here. Christ still walks in the midst of His visible churches seeking fruit. We see this in Revelation 2 and 3. He walks among His, among his churches... He makes observations. He gives rebukes. He gives exhortations. He knows all of our works and all of our deeds. Jesus Christ is Lord of the church and head of the church. And He's taken upon Himself the responsibility of, of being in and with every church to see to their fruitfulness and to see to their obedience. Last step. Christ still threatens to judge fruitless churches. Revelation 2.23 And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Revelation 3.3 Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Christ will come 
to every church that no longer bears fruit and he will remove their lampstand. He will render them obsolete, devoid of the spirit. He will write over their door, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. No matter what's happening inside, no matter what the people are wearing or doing or singing or saying. So here's the application for us. Again, I believe it's obvious. Would Covenant Bible Church be found a fruitful church or a fruitless church? He's here. He's watching. He's examining. He's analyzing. How would He find us? Now by way of application then, let's consider a few things. First, what is fruit? From a biblical perspective, there's a lot of confusion about this. Many churches we could look at, and a lot of people would say, it's a fruitful church. How do we know it's not just leaves? What is fruit from a biblical perspective? Now, it's obvious from the form of that question, a biblical perspective, that what we're looking for, we're, we're trying to find a biblical perspective of fruit, that assumes that there might be an unbiblical perspective. So let's start there. What fruit is not Remember the fig tree. It had leaves. It should have had fruit. It was actually ahead of its time for leaves. It, it, was, it was almost remarkable. We all like to think that our children are advanced when they start being tested as they get older. Yeah, he's advanced. Every kid you ever run into is advanced. Every kid's big for his age or whatever. We like to think that, that, that our churches are, our church is advanced. But the fig tree was advanced, but it had no fruit. So we could say negatively, fruit is not merely things that are visible or observable to the naked eye or observed superficially. Fruit is not merely numerical growth. And hear what I'm saying, not merely numerical growth. There are a lot in, in our circles who pride themselves in us four no more. You know, we, we don't want to get, we don't want to have growth. It's not merely numerical growth. It's not merely visible deeds or, or, or things that we do outwardly. Not merely these things. It's not merely words and confessions and positions on various doctrines. It's not just those things. You can go to website after website after website and read orthodoxy after orthodoxy after orthodoxy and you go and realize the glory has departed. Everything's right. They've got all these things outward, uh, outwardly, superficially, observably right. It's just leaves. While these things are good, we should desire numerical growth. I hope we all do. I hope we, I hope we are all thinking that we're going to be breaking our backs getting another building ready in, before long because we've outgrown the one we're moving into. We want numerical growth, but alone, it's, these things are worthless. They may tend to be attractive from a distance, but they do not necessitate real fruit. And again, that goes both ways. You go across the street and they may say, look how many people we got. Here's fruit. You go to a Reformed church and say, look how few people we have. We've got fruit. The fruit is that nobody comes. And that's, that should not be our perspective. So it's not these things that we can just outwardly observe. So what, what, what is fruit? Generally speaking, 
We could say that fruit is the outgrowth of true piety. Or that is true godliness in a person's life or in the life of a church. The outgrowth of true piety. The outgrowth of true godliness. Now that's big. That's a, that we could we could spend a long time unpacking that. I want to try to narrow it down, and let's consider two passages of Scripture that will help us here. Matthew chapter three and verse eight. John the Baptist says, "Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Acts 26 and verse 20. We read that Paul declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. That is, this was the universal preaching of Paul. That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now notice in both of these passages, bearing fruit or performing deeds is intimately tethered to repentance. Repentance. Again, that's also true in the churches of the Revelation, by the way, which we're probably going to learn about at the beginning of November. Repentance, over and over. Repent, and this will happen. Repent and do this. Repent and do this. Repent and do this. Works, fruit, repentance are tied together. Fruit and deeds are the outgrowth of repentance or godly piety. But repentance is not merely external. You can't just see it. Repentance is primarily and centrally internal. Repentance by definition is a change of the heart and a change of the mind with regard to sin. And, and it's that change from within which is, a, is an outgrowth of piety that begins to produce fruit and will eventually show itself outwardly. External piety or external godliness, the outgrowth of piety, fruit, flows from internal penitence, internal repentance. Fruit and deeds are immediately tethered to repentance, which is inward. But we also know, hopefully, that the opposite side of the coin of repentance is faith. Remember, conversion is repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. And just like repentance, faith is first and foremost affected within a person. It starts inside. But we learn from James that it also produces fruit. James 2.26, faith apart from works is dead. Yes, it's inward, but it must come out. Repentance is inward, but it must come out. So faith is also a source of fruit, a source of deeds. Here's what I want you to see. Repentance and faith are both works of God in a person's heart and in their mind with regard to sin and righteousness. From repentance and faith will grow the outward outgrowth, the, the fruits that accompany those inward realities. So picture an apple tree. We're in apple season. We're the apple city. Picture an apple tree. It's in full bloom. It has roots that go under the ground that you can't see. 
And hanging from the branches are apples. From the roots grows, the, the tree absorbs nutrients and food to grow. And in apple season, it will put forth leaves and fruit. Fruit's important. Without fruit, you're not going to have another tree. You can, you can dig holes, plant leaves all day long. You're not going to have any more trees. You start planting fruit, you will have trees. So when we consider the spiritual fruit that God desires from an individual or from a church, the roots under the ground that you can't necessarily see at first, could be looked at as repentance and faith. And that grows into the trunk of the tree, which would be true godliness or true piety. And then those branches go out in every different direction. Those would be reaching into every facet of your life, everywhere you go, every person you know, every conversation you have, every moment of your day. And in every one of those little places, there will be the fruit of practical piety growing in those areas. The fruit of repentance and faith growing in every little area of your life. So what is fruit? Again, Fruit is the outgrowth of true piety. But piety grows or starts from repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, turning from sin to God, acting upon His revealed will, are the most basic forms of fruit. Now again, that doesn't go very well with the analogy, but it all starts there. It starts inwardly. It starts beneath the surface, and fruit will grow from that. And what does this fruit look like? Here are a few categories I think that we can we could begin to list under these all of the specifics of every one of our lives. But here are four categories of of things that should be fruit of practical piety. The first one is hatred and disdain for sin in all of its manifestations and in every facet of life. Hatred and disdain for sin in all of its manifestations in every facet of life. Sins, whenever they are revealed by the Spirit, no matter what area of life they affect, they will be dealt with quickly and definitively. That's a fruit. There will not be particular areas of life where you, they get a little special treatment and that would look like less inspection. Let's not go there. I'll, we'll deal with this and this. Don't mess with what I watch on TV. Don't mess with what I listen to on the radio. Don't mess with the, the worldview that I, that I receive from, from my friends and family members. Don't mess with that. But I'll, I'll do this. Oh, sure. I, I, I mean, I, I, I really need to read my Bible more. I'm, I'm doing great at that. But God, don't mess with this over here because I like that. That's not fruit. That's not true godliness or true piety because true piety will go into every area of life. There are branches in every direction. And everywhere you see sin, you will hate it and you will, you will dis have a disdain for it. The second category of fruit would be a true love for and affection for God in the heart that flows out in a love for others. Love for God that flows out in a love for others. In other words, actions and deeds and confession of sin and repentance and obedience to the will of God, all of that will flow out of a heart that loves God and loves neighbor, not just rote ritual. 
And there are some people, believe it or not, there are some people, if they find out you're obeying the law of God, they cannot imagine that anyone would do it from a heart that loves to serve God. Amen. They see it, and the only thing they can think is legalism, yeah. bondage. Are you not miserable? They can't imagine that we love the Lord and want to obey Him in every area of life. We obey God because we love Him and He loves us. And it's a joy and a thrill to obey Him. We all want our kids to get that way. And I've used this analogy before. Children, when they're young, they don't understand that the rule, don't play in the road, they don't understand that that's the greatest blessing we could ever give them. Yeah is a rule, a command. It's good. I love you. I want you to live. Don't play in the road. And they might see that as bondage. But a mature person says, thanks for teaching me not to play in the road. I see that as good and loving and helpful. And it has only brought life. Children despise rules from those who love them the most. But the fruit of godliness comes out and it shows itself in a true love and affection for God that flows out in affection for others. In all of these areas where we obey and repent and confess, and it's because we love the Lord. We want to serve Him. Thirdly, consistently seeking out the heart of God and the mind of God in His Word with respect to every direction that a branch or tree might a branch of the tree might be pointing. Again, they're going every which way. They're all over the place. And it will take a while to trace down every little limb and every little place it goes. But you want to have fruit growing in every one of them. In our fallen condition, even after we're born again, we don't just simply sit and wait for God to deposit into our minds specific sins that we need to address. Right. If you love the Lord and you want to honor Him, you will set yourself to find it. Yeah. True repentance from a true love for God sets the Christian at work searching out sins, searching out God's commands. You make it your life's labor to conform to godliness. That's the whole goal, is to just be more like Christ before you breathe your last breath. Why would you not set yourself in every area of life to do that? Everywhere. You're looking. Everything you do, if it's especially if it's a daily habit, before you do it, stop and say, is this godly? Is this what God would have me to do now? Is this what God would have me to do here? And search it out and be honest. What do you have to lose except sin? Now, we can't imagine that. We think, well, I, I'm not going to have that entertainment. I'm not going to have that, that little burst of pleasure that this or that thing gives me. But true godliness for a Christian is exponentially greater than any, any fleeting pleasure that sin might give. So we'll seek out the heart and the mind of God and His Word with respect to every direction that a branch might be growing. Fourthly, another fruit. What does it look like? It looks like regularly setting aside ungodliness and adopting righteousness. Regularly setting aside ungodliness and adopting righteousness. How many of you right now could write down the last time a specific sin was revealed to you by God 
You searched out His will on the issue. You prayed for His help in turning from that sin. And then you actively engaged in living differently. It is true that repentance is a way of life. It's a worldview. We hate sin. And that's just the way we view the world. But that doesn't mean that there are not also obvious definitive moments in your life, specific moments in time where particular sins are mortified and righteous deeds are taken up. There's, we should be able to say, I once did this, but now I do this. I once, two weeks ago, I, I thought this way, but, but now I'm beginning to think this way. Last year, I struggled with unbelief in this area. But God has helped my unbelief and I've grown. Well, Jeremy was talking this week, we were riding together, about how he used to play in the band. And, and he used to, and even after he was converted, play in the band. And it was just something he did. And then now he just says, I can't do it anymore. It's not the type of people I've been around. He doesn't know I prayed that specifically for him. God, we, we should have these things where we can point to and say, I know there's fruit. It's not just this, this idea out there, well, I, I don't like sin. No, there should be specifics. I had that sin that was a problem, and God revealed it, and I prayed, and now it's, I'm, I'm living differently. Amen. You see, definitive moments, regularly setting aside ungodliness and living out Righteousness. We should be able to pinpoint these things if you are producing the fruit of repentance and faith. If you go to an apple tree, you know it's producing fruit because you can reach up and grab an apple and pull it. Say, fruit, apple. Apple, fruit. Tree's working. You don't just have to say, well, I, I guess it's producing fruit. You, should, you touch it. You can see. These are some of the things that Christ longs to find in His churches and in the individual members of those churches. He's not impressed with leaves. So what is fruit from a biblical perspective? The regular outgrowth of true piety in every area of life rooted in repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it is your life being conformed to the image of Christ and Christ's life being formed in you. That's fruit. Now will that show outwardly in numerical growth? Maybe. There, every, every group, every people, every generation has seasons and places. Will that look like great outward displays and deeds? Sometimes, maybe. Different churches are called to different things. Some churches can, can send $10,000 or $20,000 to help hurricane victims. Other churches do other things. It's going to look differently. The, the, the thing is, repentance and faith will produce fruit, and it's going to look differently in different places. Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Is Christ's life being formed in you? Second question, what is the source of this fruit? If the root's under the ground... Our repentance and faith and the trunk of the tree is true piety and the branches are going out into every area of your life and every relationship and every conversation and place that you go and every second of the day and they are producing fruit in all of those areas. What is the soil from which these roots extract their nutrients and their life? John 15:4. Jesus says, Abide in me. And I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now here we, we have the, the obvious embarrassment of mixing metaphors with our Lord, but I think you get the picture. Christ is the soil. We have to be rooted in Him. He is the source of repentance and faith. He's the source of all life and nutrients. <clears throat> so are you grafted to Christ? Are you, the fibers of your being beginning to, to grow and to be intertwined with Christ? Is He beginning to be formed in you? Do you wake up talking to Him and go to sleep talking to Him? Have you come through faith into a real, saving, unexplainable, mystical union with the second person of the eternal Godhead? Because that's where fruit comes from. He's the source of life. He's the seedbed from which we get water and nutrients and all of the, the vitamins that we need for life. It is Christ who gives life that will produce fruit, not ingenuity, not an iron will, not good sturdy bootstraps that don't break after you've pulled yourself up over and over again. Not a can-do attitude where you just grit your teeth and bear it and say, oh, I'm just going to produce this fruit in this area so that these people will get off my back about this fruit. And Christ is the source. Third point, the certainty of fruit. What is fruit? Practical piety growing in every area of your life rooted in repentance and faith. Or growing from the roots of repentance and faith. What's the source? It's Christ alone. From Him comes this fruit. What is, thirdly, the certainty of this fruit? John 15, 5. Again, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not only, and this is the point of the verse, apart from Christ can you produce no fruit, but in Christ you will absolutely produce fruit. No fruit, no Christ. So all of those things I listed, what is, what is biblical fruit? If they're not there, no Christ. If you come to Jesus, you will repent. You will believe. You will turn and flee and run from sin. You will begin to tremble at the thought of sinning against God. You will work and you will strive and you will search and you will seek out what God desires, what God demands. You will make it the aim of your life to search out every deepest, darkest application of His perfect divine will for you. And you will make it work. You will do what you want to do. You will get rid of whatever you need to get rid of. You will do whatever it takes to make it happen. Yeah. You will produce fruit. And the reason for many Christians there's no victory here or victory there or mortification of that sin is because you don't want to. You don't want to mortify that sin because you think that sin is better to you than Christ is. Yeah. It's better to you than God could be. Fruit production is certain for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would Covenant Bible Church prove to be a fruitful church or a fruitless church? Would you prove to be a fruitful tree or a fruitless tree? We're going to get to the other building and do all this work and fill it up and have all of this excitement and... 
only to close close it up and break our lease in 5, 10, 20 years because the glory has departed. It was all show. It was all leaves. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What if your supposed fruit were bitten into? Would it prove to be rotten or would it be good? A lot of times even what we attempt or, or appear to produce inwardly is rotten. Would you be found to have a lot of lush green leaves but in the end be cursed by the Savior, prepared for destruction, thrown into the fire? Examine yourselves. Ask yourself, am I producing fruit? The fruit of the vine represents the blood of our King spilled in ratification of the new covenant. He is the righteous branch who was cut off from the land of the living for the sake of His people. Christ was severed in judgment. The axe was laid at the root and swung and He was lopped off in judgment from His Father. Not for His sins. Not for His error, His wrongdoing. His, not for His failure to produce fruit. But because in every area of our lives where we have failed to produce fruit, where we have proven fruitless, every area that we have kept from God until now, all of that, and even moving forward, all of that was put on Him. He was made to be sin. He was severed. Cast into the ocean of God's wrath in the place of sinners. And so if you are in Christ, this bread and this cup is a reminder of and a participation in the benefits of that work. In other words, have you been fruitless? Christ has taken the judgment for that. He suffered for that. Lean upon Him. Trust in Him. Cast yourself upon Him.